Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Well, hello, hello, hello. I'm Lana Reed, and welcome back to this week's edition of Don't Box Me In. Today I'm hanging out with Bunny Goodjohn. She is an English professor and the director of the writing program at Randolph College in Lynchburg. She is uh, published in both prose and poetry, and her work has appeared in a number of literary journals, including the Connecticut Review, Zone 3, the Texas Review, and the Cortland Review. She's won several prizes, including the Edwin Markham Prize for Poetry in 2011 and the Liam Rector First Book Prize for Poetry in 2014. She has novels out titled Sticklebacks and Snow Globes and The Beginning Things, and her poetry collection Bone Song, launched in two, spring of 2015. I want to thank Bunny for making time to sit down and talk with me today, and I welcome her to the show. Bunny, welcome to Don't Box Me In. Hi, Lana. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for hanging out with me. Now, you know, uh, one of the things I do uh, when I get ready for my shows with my guest, Bunny, is I, I go and scour Google and websites and try to figure out as much about my guest as much as possible. And um, the first thing that I noticed right offhand, uh, your name, Bunny Good. John is very uh, British sounding. Is that correct? It is British sounding. It's um, <laughs> it's not the name I was born with. I was oh. um, nicknamed Bunny by a very good friend, and the last name Good John is the only remnant from my second marriage. So okay. I've acquired both names rather than being born with them. But um, but yes, they are both very British. Very British. So, you know, just between me and you, Bunny, you know, you can give me the inside scoop. You know, what, who's better, the British or the Americans? Well, it's a hard question to answer at this point since I took citizenship. Um, okay. So, you know, I'm kind of on the fence about this, but um, maybe if you ask me in December, I might, um, I might be able to tell you what I think. <laughs> okay, but I'm, I'm assuming you still can't get used, to the fact, get used to the fact that we put sugar in our tea, right? Well, you know, I'm not so bad about the the sugar in the tea, but what I'm still struggling with is is the idea of cold tea. (laughs) Each year I force myself once a year to eat fried catfish and iced tea just to make sure that I still don't like them. And I haven't done it yet in 2016, but it's on my list. Uh, I don't think I'm going to shift away from not getting my head around the idea of um, tea with ice cubes in it. Uh, and you are you're in what part of America? Are you the South or the North? What part are you in? I'm in Virginia, Lynchburg, Virginia. Oh, so you're very uh, saturated with the uh, Southern sweet tea, then. So you're really struggling with it. I certainly am, and it was <laughs> okay. a, an absolute shock to me when I got here. Um, okay, the as, cold you know, sweet tea—that is a summer delicacy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, like I mentioned in the intro there, you are a writer. Um, I'm curious to know, how long have you been uh, doing this writing? When did the writing bug kind of hit you? Yeah, um, not not long, um, to be honest with you. I'm, okay. uh, I just celebrated my 56th birthday, and um, up until my 40th birthday, I haven't really written very much apart from some very bad poems that lived in a shoebox under my bed. Um, okay. It was only when I arrived in America and um, went into full-time education. I, I came to America with, with zero credits and, and no degree, 
and the only thing to do in America is to, you have to have some kind of college education. So I found myself newly in the country and in a freshman composition class at, at, at Randall College. Um, okay. So at that point, I, I discovered a love for writing. So I've been writing really for just about 15 years. Okay. Okay. So before writing, you know, your dreams were to be a, a veterinarian or an astronaut, or what did you think? You, what did you think you were going to do before you became a writer? You know, Lana, I, I was born in 1960 um, into a working class family in North London, and okay. really the only expectation I had for me was to get married and have kids. Okay. And okay. I really wanted to be a secretary. Um, I, I, my, my main fear was I would never make it out of the um, typing pool. And I wanted to be a secretary like my sister. So okay. um, my expectations were pretty low. And, um, and I think if I had known then what I know now, I don't think I would have believed that I, that I could have shifted so far from what I expected into what I have today. It's been quite a journey. Okay, well, we're, we're truly glad that there was a shift. Um, so was there some sort of event that sparked it, or, you know, how is it that the transition came to be? Yeah, I, um, I was living in, in North London mm-hmm. and going out with a young man who um, I was working with at the same company, and he was offered a, a job interview in Lynchburg. And, okay. um he offered me a rather fine and interesting weekend date of um, a trip to America for the weekend. So I, awesome. I came over and he got the job. Um, we both came over. We got divorced and I stayed. <laughs> That's <was> really <laughs> how that happened for me. And, um, okay. So it was well, we're going to assume you got the better part of the deal, right? Oh, I got his last name. I think the last <laughs> name is pretty swanky, so I'm pretty happy with that. Awesome, awesome. So you started going to college in, um, there, and you started taking writing uh, composition courses. Uh, you know, is that when it was like, okay, this is it, or did it hit you immediately, or it was a gradual no. kind of thing? No, when I first arrived at college, I, my, my goal was to be a journalist. I really liked the idea of um, investigative writing. I'd okay. done 15 years as a technical author in London, Basically, my job was to write all those user manuals that nobody reads. <laughs> when you buy something like a toaster and you get that little book. That oh, yes. Okay. And you throw it away with all the styrofoam. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so when I came here, I, you know, I, um, I, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. But one day I heard a group of poets talking at a lunchtime table. And I was intrigued by what, how they defined poetry. It wasn't what I thought poetry was. And that began a, a shift from political science over to the English department. And once I found the English department, I was lost. <laughs> and, um, and I declared as an English major later that year. Okay. Now, um, I do want to note that you do uh, write poetry. And I'm just curious, um, do you have some favorite poets out there today? Gosh, do I have favorite poets today? I'm, I'm such a strange... Um, reader and writer, I, I tend to have a, a deep love for poets who are dead. Okay. <laughs> dead a long time. Um, and also, I, I like um, I like some contemporary poets, but I, you know, my favorite poet tends to be the last poet that I read. Okay. Uh, which is um, just the way that it goes for me. But um, I love Wallace Stevens. Um, I love T. S. Eliot. Yes. Um, so those would be my. I would return to those. 
um, my favorite poets, um, I guess, today. And I'm such a, um, a renegade in terms of my colleagues. Okay. And uh, I really think that poetry should be accessible. And therefore, I love people like um, Billy Collins, and I love Mary Oliver. And it's oh. not fashionable to love them. <laughs> not at all. But I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I love them. Not at all. <laughs> Yeah, you are unique there. Now, I mean, you know, you you do both. Uh, like I said, you do yeah. the poetry and you have some books out. I'm just curious, do you find that there's a large market out there today for poetry or do more people uh, want to read a novel? You know, I think that um, poetry has a really bad rap. Okay. And uh, again, I think, it, I think the, so I think the, the quick answer to that is that I think there's a small market for poetry and I think that poets sell their book one book at a time by hand. In that we, we sell our books to other poets, other writers, and then we hope that other people might fall in love with them too. Um, so it, it is a small market and no one's going to get rich off of poetry. But I think that given that we live in a world where the attention span is so short, yes. poetry is ideal. Narrative poems for, the, for those who are short on attention is such a marriage, you know, it's a brilliant marriage, but... Um, that is a good point, you know, because today we want stuff quick, we want it fast, and, you know, two seconds yeah. or less. So you would think that the writings, poetry writings, would, um, you know, really fit into that scheme of thing. But I've heard, you know, other writers who do uh, do a lot of poetry, you know, kind of say the same thing that you're saying, that it's really a hard market to, you mm-hmm. know, maybe pay the light bill off of or, you know, learn uh, to earn your bread and butter off of. It's, it's not really a viable market for income. It's, it's tricky. The, re- the rewards aren't financial. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, um, my love of, of poetry, of writing poetry, landed me a job in academia. Okay. And that, that's really what it did for me in terms of, in terms of financial reward, in that it got me out of um, project management, which I hated, and landed me uh, right in the middle of academia. And so I'm always very grateful to poetry for that. Now, you mentioned that you have some unique uh, taste in who you like that uh, does poetry. Now, what would you define your writing style is for poetry and your, your novels? Yeah, um, I think if we look at poetry, I'm, I love the idea of um, writing from, from what we know, but being willing to explore things we don't know. So my, my poetry tends to be professional. Um, but I, like, I don't want it just to be, this is what I've done. I want it to be, this is what I've done. Can you find any kind of connection with this? So I think that's what poetry does. It can open a conversation and it can can break down barriers and, and make things that are taboo less taboo. You know, and, and writers, we're, we're very uh, protective and, and territorial about our work. So I'm just curious, have you ever been in a situation where, you know, you're, you're sharing your heart and soul with somebody, you know, your poetry, and they interpret it so differently than what you said, and you're just like, that is not what I meant. <laughs> yes, yes, I, and I can't actually remember the poem that I was reading um it was it was quite a few years ago, but I read it, I delivered a poem in, in a reading, and somebody came up to me and, and told me that um, that they felt that it was the the, um, the most sensitive handling of um, human death that they had ever come across, and I, I and it wasn't about human death, but I learned a huge lesson that day, and it's one it's one that I that I hang on to today, and it's that the poem is mine at the point at which I write it. 
and it, it really remains mine until I publish it. And at the point at which it hits the world or the reader, any reader, it becomes theirs, so they can interpret the poem in any way that they wish. And um, so at that point, if, if, that, if that listener or that reader saw that poem as a way to navigate death, and it worked for them, then I'm I'm really happy about that being what that <laughs> poem was about in that moment. But yeah, yeah. But my poem, my poetry is pretty straightforward, so that kind of um, ambiguity is is relatively rare. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and you know, that, that shows evolution as a writer because, you know, you tend to want to, th- these are our babies, you know, this is, this is mine and you want everybody to see it how you see it and, you know, right. for, for you to be able to get to that point to say, okay, once I release it out into this universe, wherever the reader goes with it and whatever it does for them, you know, I'm going to be happy with that. You know, I know what I meant when I wrote it, but whatever you get from it, you know, that, that's, right. um, that's amazing. So, uh, Bunny, hold on for a second with me. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Like they said, I'm your host, Lana Reed, and today I'm hanging out with the very British Bunny Goodjohn, and she's the author of uh, books such as uh, The Beginning Things, Bone Song, and Sticklebacks and Snow Globes. Now, uh, Bunny, you are a uh, English professor at Randolph College in Lynchburg right now, correct? Yes, okay. I am, yeah. Awesome, awesome. So how long have you been at that? Well, I joined them as an adjunct instructor back in 2007, which was, um, interestingly, the year they went co-ed. They were a women's college before that. Um, but I joined them full-time in 2008. So, yeah, I've been there a while now, and um, I love it. Okay, awesome. Now, what do you do as a professor when you get that, you know, smart-talking student that walks in and, you know, they're pouting, they're like, I'm a chemistry major, I don't know why they're making me take English, you know, what what, what are the advantages, uh, do you, you tell your students, of, of taking an English class? Yeah, I, th- I think that the communication is at the core of success, mm-hmm. uh, however we define success, you know, whether it's, whether it's, um, persuading a colleague that, that how we want to do something is the best way or whether there's a difficult concept you want to get over to somebody. So I try and sell writing as communication. Okay. And I also try and sell it as a, as a way to make sense of the world around us. Um, we seem to be becoming worse at um, talking about emotions and yes. fears and joys. And sometimes the relationship between the writer and their pad or their laptop screen can be really beneficial. Yes. You know, we're not doing uh, so much face-to-face communication, you know, and I tell people all the time it's very hard to, to interact because you can't hear the tone of somebody, you can't hear their facial expressions, and it's really hard to to get healthy communication while you're talking to somebody through a computer screen, you know, like I can't read somebody's email and see the mood they were in when they said it, you know, and that's that's room for a lot of misinterpretation. So, you know, the English, English language has a lot of communication tools in it that... Um, some t- some of today's generation is not even learning. You know, like I read some text messages, or you know, even I'm on my social media, on my Facebook, and the younger generation they have this abbreviation style that is so annoying because I'm like, that's not the way you spell that word. Like, <laughs> right, right. And I think also they don't have a very firm grasp of audience. 
Yes. They seem to talk to everybody in the same way, which is yes. um, very democratic, but in, <laughs> sometimes we need to employ a different tone with different audiences in order to get what we want or in order to get our point across properly. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Valuable lessons that previous generations have that, sadly, you know, that the young folks today just don't have. But, you know, we're trying to kind of merge us all together and live and hopefully... You know, but, I, you know, like I said, I just see the consequences of it, you know, because I, me personally, I walk around in this world and, you know, like you said, some people will talk to me and I'm like, that's not the way to have a conversation for me because clearly I know you want something from me, but you're not going to, you're not going to get it talking to me like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's effective communication, you know, whether it's written or spoken. So mm-hmm. they, some of them have a long way to go, but if you can sell them the benefits to them, I, I think you can start that conversation, and then it's just a case of keeping that conversation going. Now, you know, we're, we're t- uh, talking about the, some of the issues that the younger generation has with communication, and, and that's the thing, the benefits of taking an English class. Are there any other th- uh, areas that you see your, your young students walking into your class that they struggle with when it comes to taking an English class? I'm not sure whether it's consigned purely to the English class, but it's kind of, this is a surprising thing to me, is that I'm finding more and more that my, especially my first year students, those ones who have just pushed over from high school, they seem really, some of them seem reticent to express their own opinion. And, and it goes hand in hand with that is they have some kind of naive belief in everything they read or hear, mm-hmm. um, and which is a strange and worrying pairing in that they won't voice their own opinion and they're very happy to take on board other people. I that's see. scary. I yes, think it that's is. Pretty scary. Yeah. Yes, you know, and, and I go back to the fault. I think a lot of that is social media because, you know, um, we we tend to be now. Once somebody posted on the internet or whatever, all of a sudden it's true, it's valid. Nobody right. does any research to make sure, um, right. you know, that it's correct. And I mean, I just think it's it's a. Um, a downside to the, the, the times that we live in, you know, and, and I can see that with today's generation. They don't, there's no follow-up research, no thinking, you know, wait a minute, does this make any sense what is being said to me? Let me research and see if there are some valid points in that before I just accept this person's viewpoint. Right, right. Right, and I see that there's a, there's a, there's a tendency to dispute that there could be two different viewpoints that are equally valid. They seem to want a correct answer, and I think that comes from um, the the environment of testing, you know, where there is a right answer. Um, And and learning that in life, sometimes there isn't just one answer can be very unsettling for them. So since you are a uh, professor of of English and you deal with students all the time, handing you, turning in papers and stuff like that, and and some of them are are good and some of them are bad. I'm going to ask you to help me with a situation I had not too long ago. So I had a friend and he was glowing, so excited. He had sat down and he had wrote this manuscript and he just thought it was awesome and amazing. And he's like, Lana, you need to read this for me and give me your input. So, you know, I said, okay, me being the friend that I am, let me, let me sit down. So I'm, I'm reading it and I'm flipping through the pages and I'm, I'm page after page and I'm getting further into Oh my gosh, this really sucks. <laughs> this is really bad. But I didn't know how, to, I didn't know how to like turn to my friend and say, um, you know, maybe, you know, we should, you know, look at this or maybe, how do you, how do you give yeah. criticism about somebody's writing? Yeah. 
Lana, did it suck in terms of um, uh, uh, mechanics or did it suck in terms of story? It sucked in terms of mechanics. Now, the, the yeah. points that he was trying to make and get across were wonderful, phenomenal. But the mechanics of his writing was so bad that you got lost in the point right. that he was trying to make. Well, I think that's good news. I mean, if, if you have to pull some kind of news out of that experience, that was good news. <laughs> in, in the, I think that the mechanics of English can be learned, but it requires an absolute um, dedication to learn them. So when I have when that happens to me with a student, I'm so lucky in, in that I can pair them up with a writing lab tutor and, and they can work together, you know, for the semester and we usually see an improvement. But I think for those of us who are outside school when we, we graduate <laughs> in the real world, I can't um, I can't say enough good things about the writing group. In the when I don't know I'm sure you have experience with this, but when you get together with a group of peers who are all struggling to achieve the same thing, whether it's publication or a first draft or whatever, um, the the input of peers seems to be much better than the input of cold, impersonal strangers. So I, I recommend a good book group. I also recommend reading, 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 reading. Um, I think that something happens. I think we learn about good syntax and good sentence structure through reading good syntax and good sentence structure. But it's almost like osmosis. It's like magic. It's not like we have to study it. We just kind of absorb it. And therefore, then when we read our work, it just feels wrong. And and then we can go back and correct. So lots of good reading, um, the support of a good um, writing group. And I think there's there's a lot to be said for the good grammar handbook. You know, I I, I have several that I use and that I love, and um, and I you know they're worn out. I go back to them all the time because I have the things that I'm not particularly good at, and I've been writing seriously for a while now. So yeah, it's, it's a problem. Um, I have a really good friend, a poet called. Um, he has a beautiful name. He has to be a poet. His name is Baron Wormser, and he comes from um, Connecticut. Okay. And he's a wonderful poet, um, poet and professor. And I asked him the same questions. You know, what should I do with my first years when I'm in a workshop with them? How can I tell them what to do without jumping all over them and, and kind of making them cry? And he said, um, what you do is you do the two stars and a wish approach. You find two things that you can give them a star for. And you find one thing where you start the sentence with, I wish you had. <laughs> you know, I wish you had proofread this before you brought it to the workshop. Or I wish you had looked up, you know, comments or whatever. But if you give them two stars first and then hit them with a wish, okay. I wish you had, um, then you kind of build them up a little bit before you redirect them to what needs to be done. So it's like my grandmother used to line up all the cousins and make us drink that spoonful of casserole, but she gave us a spoonful of sugar afterwards to wash it down. Yeah, so. she, yeah, she did, she did the wish and the star. Um, yeah, because yeah, yeah, I think maybe that maybe that might be worth doing the other way around and leaving with something nice rather than something different. <laughs> So in your career um, as a professor, do you have any students that have went on to, um, you kind of, you know, got your collar puffed out, they've started their own writing careers? Yes, yes, yes. Awesome. I, I have the, I'm, I'm very, very lucky in that part of the teaching process means I work with seniors, um, as creative writing seniors, and I want to put a big shout out for um, a young lady called Sarah Taylor. Um, 
she and I met every Friday for a year to go through her um, manuscript. And um, she, it was beautiful. And she um, graduated, and then she sent me an email to say that she'd been at a party. And uh, she met an agent from, I think it was Random House. Um, yeah, yeah, it was Random House. And um, she gave him her manuscript, and they printed it. Awesome. So it was published back in 2013, and she sent me a copy of it, and she dedicated it to me. So when I opened it, it said, um, to be a good John for all of the Friday mornings. So I, you know, I sat there and cried a little bit, but um, that's what it's all about. It's about hand-holding new writers and pushing them out there. And, um, yeah. I think Making the next generation of writers. That's too cool. Too cool. Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. Awesome. Now, we're going to um, start uh, talking about some of the... Uh, books that you have out there you want to read for us today so before i go to commercial break um what is the book that you're going to read from today yeah i'm going to read from my latest novel and um just to save me having to give you lots of backstory i'm going to read the first chapter which is is pretty short but it's is core to the whole book okay so and that 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 book is bone song or the beginning things it's called the beginning things Okay, the beginning things. Now, um, I will say before, we're going to take a commercial break real quick and then we're going to come back and read from that. But um, before we go, I am a syndicated bunny, so we can't, we have to modify the, the creative words that are in the book. Certainly. Okay. All right, we're going to take a, a quick commercial break and when we come back, uh, Bunny's going to read for us. We'll be right back. Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. I am Lana Reed, and today I am hanging out with uh, English professor and director of writing at Randolph College in Lynchburg, Miss Bunny Goodjohn, and she's got a book out called The Beginning Things that she's going to read from us uh, for a moment here. So, uh, Bunny, go ahead and do your wonderful thing. Thank you. So I'm going to read um, chapter one, and this chapter introduces us to the book's main character, um, a 12-year-old girl called Pop. Chapter one. Mirrors can be tricksters. Sometimes when she was getting ready for school and checking her reflection in the bathroom cabinet, Pop Thompson allowed herself to think about Gareth Strand and to trace their initials inside a heart in the air with her finger. If she focused on her finger, then the letters and what they signified made sense to her. If she focused on herself, on the girl in the mirror, the heart and its contents were jumbled, gibberish, blurry. Some mirrors have no glass. Gareth Strand's bedroom was the exact same size as her own, eight foot six by ten feet, and held the same furniture, a single bed, a chest of drawers, and a bedside table, although his had two narrow bookshelves, whereas hers had a cupboard. The room was a mirror image, flipped. When she stood at his door, the wall with his chest of drawers was on her right rather than her left, the built-in wardrobe on her left rather than her right. But face down on the bed with her head turned to the wall to escape the hot crush of his pillow on her nose and mouth, it all made perfect sense. The first time his body had pressed her hard into the mattress, she had been surprised more by the dead weight of his body than by her acceptance of his hands roaming across her shoulders, along her shoulder blades, the sides of her waist, her hips. He had kept the fabric of their clothes between them, as if that somehow diffused what was happening up there in his room. 
The light from the lamppost at the corner of Willow Switch Lane fell across the windowsill, bleaching the back of her hands and illuminating a flotilla of tiny, brilliantly colored boats printed on his sheet. The hull of each boat was brown, but the sails were vivid, crimson, yellow, green. She counted each boat in the group that sailed around her hand. Seven, their sails full of wind. She could hear seagulls screaming out there in the night. There were always gulls, night and day. The dump at the back of the housing estate fed them. It was where they scavenged, squabbled, and laid their eggs. It was where they lived. She focused on the pressure of his hand on the back of her neck, the way it supported all his weight, and let loose the tiny moan inside her head, the kind she had heard coming from naked actors in late-night television plays, the kind of moan that sifted in through the thin wall that separated her own room from the one her parents shared before her father had left for America. The moan sounded good inside her head, like the sound a real woman might make, and she risked another, this time out loud. Liberated from her imagination, the moan morphed into the noise an animal or a small, scary monster might make. The boy's hands froze on her neck and she stayed very still, keeping her breath tight inside her body. In that stuck silence, the tiny banging began again. It had started when Gareth Strand had stuffed his little brother Melvin crying inside the wardrobe. Pop knew it strained from the one in her own room, the wide shelf along the top, the hanging rail that ran below, the way things seemed to get lost or forgotten if pushed too far to the back. She pictured the boy, younger than she, in the closet cold, knowing the darkness would be touchable. If he opened his mouth to cry out, it would creep inside him whether he wanted it to or not. Metal hangers would be cold and clattering around his ears, and by now the soft sides of his hands would have begun to hurt. His fists continued to hammer, and yet he didn't shout or cry out. He was as mute as she now, as if he too was afraid of letting that darkness in. Or maybe he was unsure of exactly what sound he should be making, or even of how to make it. She pressed her own fist softly into the pillow. Melvin's banging stopped and Gareth began again. His hands left her neck, the full weight of his upper body now jamming her, empty breath, into the bed, to stroke her bare calves. His touch was tentative, as if he were writing difficult words onto the thin skin on the backs of her knees. Little spells and incantations, stories, tiny gifts. She felt the breeze from the open window move across her as he pushed the folds of the skirt up above her waist. She felt the soft rub of his smooth corduroy trousers on her thighs. She tried another moan, and this time it slipped out long and low and powered his hands faster, his fingers forgetting the story. His touch became firmer and more assured. He knew where everything was and where he was going. He knew her body and how it worked. He knew this room and the titles of all the books on its shelves. He knew his brother, as he knew himself. He knew how it would be inside the closet. Even in the dark, this boy knew all these things. His knees slipped between hers and he gripped her tight above her elbows. Hot and bony, his hands pressed the scratchy lace trim of her short sleeves against the soft skin on the inside of her arms. He was pounding into her harder and quicker, as if he were riding a rocking horse free of its wooden runners. And then he moaned. The moan was a newborn, a sound that needed no practice, the kind that was his and nothing at all to do with her. 
It twisted in her ears as he stopped rocking, as she felt his body arch upwards off of hers, his weight supported entirely on the hands that gripped her arms, the subtle lifting of weight pressing her inexplicably ever deeper into the mattress. And then, when the moan was gone, dragged away like a wooden box along a pathway, he fell forward, covering her with heaviness. His breath on her neck smelt like fresh dirt on a shovel. The whole room smelt like a kitchen garden before planting, when the rose had been turned over earlier in the day, and it's getting dark, and everyone has gone in, leaving the garden to itself and the night birds. Pop lifted her head from the pillow, arching her own back, desperate to catch more of the smell, to file it away as evidence of the rocking and the banging and the dark and the honest-to-goodness truth that this was her first boyfriend and that this, all of this, was love. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful construction of Thank words you. and just imagery and sensation. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you wonderful. so much. Uh, this character, Todd Thompson, this is not the first time you've introduced her to the world. Um, she's no, in your... She's in your book also, Sticklebacks and Snow Globes, and we can tell by what you just read to us. Um, she's she's a character who has um, gone through some things, and not the nicest of things. Um, where, where do right. you where do you where where does she come from for you? Right. Well, um, Top Thompson is a character who just won't shut up. Um, <laughs> when I finished the first book, um, I, I honestly thought that I had finished it. That the, the book had come to some kind of resolution which all books should do, I think, at the end. But they kept hounding me, these characters, and um, I realized that Tot had more story to tell. So I'm a, I'm a huge believer that fiction has its feet firmly in fact. And I really believe that the idea that one should write what one knows. So, however, um, in order to become fiction, what happens is that those truths head off into imagination, um, they get reparceled in a way that, that makes the, the idea of the story stronger. So um, Tot is an amalgam. She's an amalgam of me and of all of my friends and, and the kids that I've met. So, um, yeah, Tot's story is mine, but it's not mine, if that makes any sense. Understood. Understood. So will we be seeing any more of Tot? You know, I'm not sure. Um, again, I've got to the last page of this book, and, and while Tot seems to be reasonably happy with where she's arrived, um, and, and the other characters seem to be relatively okay with what I've done to them, um, her mother refuses to be quiet. And um, her mother is in her 50s, or she's heading into her 50s. And as a woman writer of 56, I think that there's some stories out there that need to be told for, for women of, of my age. So I'm wondering whether maybe Elaine um, is going to be a vehicle for some of those stories. But um, I haven't started yet. I'm, I'm kind of giving myself a bit of a break from, from the long haul of novel writing. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at the end of uh, the beginning things, Tot is still 12, or has she grown any? Um, she's grown emotionally. Okay. Um, and she, the book probably covers about a year um, okay. of, of her life. But also, the book has two. If one, if one book can have two main characters, this one does. Um, okay. Two main characters are, are Tot Thompson, who's twelve, and her alcoholic grandfather. So they both ends of the age spectrum, but they both have lessons to learn. So, 
the book okay. is, is really a, 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 an exploration of, of how two people um, who are related um, learn the lessons that they need to learn in order to heal and recover. So, and, and I'm assuming that is the big message of the beginning things is, is kind of healing and recovering from whatever dysfunctions your, your family structure might offer you? Yeah, I think so. Um, I make no um, secret of the fact that I'm a woman in recovery. I have, I celebrated 10 years in March of this year. And um, I think when, when one goes through that and, and learns what can be achieved with one's life once, once we face our demons, and and name them and, and then do the hard work of um, moving them into a different part of our life. Um, I, I think that, that as a writer, that certainly colors um, the stories that I tell and, and the message that I want to put out there. But yes, I'm a huge proponent um, of recovery. We hear far too much about the horror of addiction. We need to hear more about the joys of recovery, I think. Yes, indeed. I mean, and I think that will give, you know, some more opportunities for, you know, hope if this person gets through it and, um, you know, maybe there's hope for me, maybe there's possibility for me. You only see, most of the time you see the pits, the, the fall downs, but we need to right. see the success stories as well. I agree. I agree. Awesome. So there, there's some, some very unique artwork for the cover of this book. How did that come to be? I am so glad that you, you noticed that. Um <laughs> Um, no, seriously, because I was looking at it just before we went on air, and um, basically the writers get very little, usually get very little input on the covers of their books. Mm-hmm. I was blessed with um, my publisher, um, Underground Voices, who are from, um, they work out of um, California. Uh, they sent me some options, and I fell in love with this picture on the front cover because it reminds me of my what I think Tot would look like. And um, it was bought from one of these um, stock graphic stores. Okay. And that you don't have to pay um, royalties for it because the, the, the image has been sold to a, an image warehouse, if you like. And that didn't sit well with me. Um, I think that every artist should be recognized for their work, you know. Okay. So I had a good friend of mine, Debbie Spanish, who works for the Mayer Museum, which is attached to Randolph College. And uh, she knew that I felt like this about this picture, and she managed to find the artist for me. And it turned out that the artist, and the reason that I think this is funny that you've asked this is because I was trying to work out how to pronounce the artist's name before we went <laughs> uh, live. The artist, I'm going to try this, is a Russian artist called Zoya Kreminskaya. And um, I love the graphic. We had to do one little bit of um, photoshopping because in the original graphic, the little girl is wearing a thong, <laughs> and the thong was visible. And I said to the publisher, oh, I don't think Pot would be wearing a thong. <laughs> she, she, she kind of, she, she knows far too much about sex and love, but she doesn't know anything about thongs, <laughs> and she wouldn't, be, she wouldn't know one. So we had to get a graphic designer to come in and pull her sweater down a little bit at the back. Okay. <laughs> so the song wasn't visible. Um, awesome. So I'm so pleased you, you asked that because I do think that cover art is really important. And I also think that it's important, as I said, that the artists are, are recognized, whatever, whatever kind of artist they, they are, that they're recognized for their work in some way. 
Awesome. Yes. You know, I think, uh, you know, they always say this little generic thing. You can never tell a book by its cover, but I think the cover art makes us kind of pause and pick it up and say, oh, let me see what this is about. So, you know, it's very yeah. striking that the imagery and the emotion and the feelings that you get from looking at that picture. So, you know, I think the cover art is very important when, you know, the writer is putting packaging up their, their book. So, all right, paid attention to that. Yeah, I think it's even more important, strangely enough, nowadays we live in the world of the ebook. Because yes. the covers can be flipped through in seconds, in milliseconds. So you really have to have something that delivers the message of the book, I think. Real quick. That's indeed. Yeah. So we're going to take our last commercial break here, Bunny. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Like they said, I'm your host, Lana Reed. And today my guest is Bunny Goodjohn. She is the author of uh, such books as The Beginning Things, Bone Song, and Sticklebacks and Snow Globes. And before we went to break, she had uh, introduced us to the character Thompson in the book, uh, the books, The Beginning Things, and Sticklebacks and Snow Globes. So for, let me pause real quick. Exactly what is Sticklebacks? Oh, yes. Yeah, so Stickleback is a fish. Oh, a fish! And, um, it's a tiny fish, and it uh, it thrives in dirty water. So ah, given so that the first book was set on a on a uh, what, what we call in England a council estate, it's like a housing project. Okay. Um, and it was about young children growing up in that environment. I thought that the stickleback, you know, this is tiny little fish that really does well in polluted water. Was um, was a good metaphor for Tot and her friends, okay. who, who rightly or wrongly make the choices they make, but they survive um, childhood. Powerful message. Okay, so I want to make sure because I've, I've at this time that I have left with you that I, I do get some time to spend on a bone song, uh, and that is yeah. a book of uh, poetry. Is this is your first book of poetry that you have out? It is my first book of poetry. Um, I, I I adore poetry. I think if I think my fiction um, satisfies my head, but poetry satisfies my heart. If that doesn't sound too tree huggy, oh, okay. Awesome. Um, but it's, it's, it's where if, if I had my choice and I could only write one thing, I would write poetry. Okay. Now this this book, Bone Song, there's a lot of pain in it. There's a lot of talk of relationships and addiction or whatever. And you've yeah. shared, but it, it, is it a personal story for you? It is, but, um, and I would say probably that 95% of the poems um, within Bone Song are autobiographical, and they, they tell a journey from childhood, my own childhood, through to, um, actually through to menopause, so it covers quite a lot of ground in its mm-hmm. pages. Um, however, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer that, and I was in a big conversation with a good friend of mine about the use of the, the word I in poetry, Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think readers often make the mistake of thinking that when a poem is written with the word I, then it's always about the poet. But I think that you know, poetry isn't nonfiction. It, it, it occupies that middle ground between nonfiction or creative nonfiction and um, and fiction. You know, so ninety five percent of it is absolutely true. I did it. I was there, <laughs> and five percent. So yeah. Yes, it tells a story of um, of, um, of 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 a sex life turned on way too young, okay. and of addiction 
And but it also tells the story of recovery, you know, because I, as I said before, I think that, that, that recovery is so important that we see it as a possibility rather than um, as something rarefied that, that, that doesn't happen. Okay. Now, this uh, book, Bone Song, it's won an award recently. Did I read that right? Yes, it actually won the um, 2014 Liam Rector First Book Prize for Poetry. And Liam Rector, who's a wonderful, wonderful poet, um, committed suicide um, and, and left us way too early. Um, but this, this prize has been around for, I think, about um, six or seven years. It's run every year through Briary Creek Press. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a small press, and there was a print run, I think, of 500. Once that's gone, it's gone. So at that point, um, I'll be really happy to have 500 copies of my book out there, but I'll be sad um, because then I'll have to, I don't know, publish another book, I guess. Or Yes. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's so daunting, um, Lana, you know, in the um, when you when you publish your first book, it's got nearly all of your work in it. And, and then you're, you think, oh, gosh, now I've got to, you know, start really writing in earnest again. And, and it, it takes me some time to get that, that body of work back up again. So when you do the first 500, we can't even, okay, now it's available on Kindle or anything? I mean, once that's it, that's it? No, it's... Yeah, it's not going to be available on Kindle. Um, I think what's probably going to happen is once it, once we sell out the 500, and I think we're pretty close now, um, I will probably buy back the rights and then I'll publish myself. Okay. Um, so I think that's probably what's going to happen to it. Um, I, I'm doing a book group reading tonight for a local group, and one of the readers um, is blind. Okay. And so she asked me if I could record the poems or if there was an audio version. I said there wasn't. And then, of course, I started to record all the poems. So there are versions of the poems available on my, on my website as audio files. So okay. that's one way of making them laugh, I think. Okay. okay. So, so everybody listening, there's a few copies left, so you better go out and um, get these last copies before they go. So how, how do people get a copy of They can either get them at Amazon um, just by typing in um, Bonnie Goodjohn or Bonesong. Bonnie Goodjohn is a good idea because Bonesong gets you an awful lot of hits for different things. Or you can go to my website and I'll I'll send you an autographed copy at that point. Okay, okay. Now, you know, people always assume, you know, with... folks that say that they are writers, that it's just an effortless process, you know, that, you know, we just wake up in the morning and just words just spew out of us, you know, but do you ever, do you ever struggle? Like, I can't get a word out today. Yeah. Yeah. I I was, I was talking to a friend today and he was asking me about whether I like to write poetry or prose. And I said, sometimes I like to write neither. Um, (laughs) And, um, you know, it's, it is hard work. And my first writing mentor gave me some really good advice. He said, um, don't wait for the muse because she's not going to come. <laughs> um, so you just have to, you just have to write, you know, and you have to write when you don't want to because mm. when you go back to that first draft, you either you either find one or two words that you like or a line or a paragraph, um, or you may actually think that it's a lot better than you did the previous day, you know. So I think it's a case of turning up and writing, and um, but it, you know it's hard work. It, I can write a load of words every day, but they might not be good words. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's hard work. And I tend to go off on a retreat. If I, if I need to kickstart my process, I go on a retreat, and, and that sometimes helps me. 
So I'm assuming Bunny's had those days where she writes these these pages of things and she looks at it and throws it in the trash and then she comes back the next day and picks it all up the trash like, wait a minute, I could use some of that, you know. Yeah, that's that's exactly how it happens. Or else I pick it up out the trash and there's nothing worth salvaging. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, that gets hard, you know. You just have to keep at it. And, um, yeah, you just have to keep at it. You know, for you're going to write a 100 words and maybe one of them you'll love. Um, that's the way that it goes. I'm sure there are lucky people out there who, who write, you know, um, beautiful poems without redrafting, and I hate every single one of them. I know, right? You hear these people, and I wrote this book in a day, and you're just looking at it. Like, <laughs> how, did you, how did you do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, that's not possible. You can't write that yeah, in a day. No. It's not possible for me, that's for sure. <laughs> So, Bunny, do you have any um, advice or tips for, you know, somebody who wants to enter into the uh, published writing field? Let me say published writing field. Yeah. Well, I think I think the writing group is core. But mm-hmm. I also think that you have to, at some point, you have to send your work out. And at that point, you have to get ready to be rejected. Okay. And um, you have to kind of, you have to get a, some kind of, you have to toughen up your skin you know, you were talking about, you know, when, when we, our work is, is so close to our hearts. I like to think of it as, I don't have any children, but I think it must be a little bit like when you send your kids to school on the first yes. day and you push yeah. them out into the playground and you hope they're not going to get bullied. But when they come home, you know, you clean their knees and you, you rub them down mm-hmm. and then you send them out again. You know, you have to be hard-hearted about that. I think that's the same with your work. William Stafford had... Um, 50 poems out at any one time purely to reduce the sting of rejection because mm. it came so fast and furious that it was like um, uh, like aversion therapy, you know? It's like being scared of spiders. You surround yourself with spiders. Yes. If you don't like rejection, surround yourself with rejection and you'll get used to it. I don't know. I think, I think I'd end up. Yeah, I think I'd end up like psychotic or something. I'd have to do that slowly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yes, if I could do that. It's <laughs> like slowly, like, one at a time. Ouch. Okay, I could do that, but I can't put you know, give myself exposure like fifty band aids being pulled off at one time. Like I could. Yeah, so, Bunny, um, you mentioned earlier that you are, are working with a book club tonight. You're going to um, talk at a book club. So um, people have the yeah. ability to um, get your books and yourself at their next book club. So how do they reach you for that? They can reach me via the website, bunnygoodjohn.com. And um, I will be happily come to any book club that I can drive to. Okay. Um, or I can Skype in or I can FaceTime in. Um, and I also cut them a deal on books um, if they buy them through my website. Okay, awesome. So we're going to go to the website that's the Bunny Goodjohn, the very British Bunny Goodjohn. Very British. <laughs> very British. <laughs> but not for long, you know, uh, congratulations in advance on your upcoming citizenship. So, you know, and hopefully by this time next year when I talk to you, you'll have a new appreciation for Southern Sweet Tea. But- I'm not sure. <laughs> She's like, no, no, Lana, I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> I'll do my best. Okay. Bunny, it has been a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, we're at the end of our hour. My guest today has been Bunny Goodjohn. Uh, like she said, please visit her website, bunnygoodjohn.com. Go to Amazon and type in Bunny Goodjohn. Pick up one of her books. Uh, 
make sure you get the uh, bone song before the last 500 or so. Bonnie, thank you for hanging out with me today. Thank you so much. That is all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host, Lana Reed, and I'll see you all next week.